Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Thomas Manton speaks to us from uh, his comments on Matthew 22, 11 through 13. What is coming to this feast? It is to profess ourselves Christians and using the ordinances which belong thereunto. When you submit to be baptized, hear the word, and frequent the sacraments, you come to the feast of God. Only some come to the feast, ready and spiritually. They have constant cause of rejoicing. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Others outwardly profess faith in Christ and external obedience to him. But do not thoroughly and fully walk according to Christ's rules. Would be judged Christians, but retain nothing of the life and power of Christianity, are not disciples indeed. Thus far, Mr. Thomas Manton. So we reviewed in our, in our prayer for the sermon today, the four false faiths that we've looked at thus far that the Bible reveals to us, our Lord warns us about, devil faith or a trembling faith. There is a proper trembling and an improper trembling, as we saw. Secondly, we said that there is a temporary faith, right? And that's faith that does not last, it wears out. It does not partake of those means of perseverance. Um, We see that in Matthew 13, in in that faith that is... Uh, in the rocky soil it springs up immediately but having no root it wears out we also looked at miracle faith and uh, some of you came to me afterward and said how helpful it was to to identify that kind of false faith that there are these extraordinary coincidences that people are riding on rather than rather than upon christ and then last week we looked at far enough faith is what we called it or the faith of false finish lines. Maybe we can remember it with those F's. And we said that uh, if we were uh, the enemy, one of the strategies might be to set up false finish lines and adorn them and make them look like the true, that the people of God fall short of coming to Christ. And we talked about sacerdotal things, right? And we said that that wasn't limited to sacerdotal, quote-unquote, sacerdotal churches. Sometimes praying a particular sinner's prayer or something like that is accounted for saving faith when we must not rest there. That's a false finish line. This week I have two, 
And I pray that we, we, I have prayed and do pray that we might be able to get through both of them today. We can move on to some marks of saving faith and then we'll be done, I think, with a fairly complete study, at least somewhat complete of what, what we see in the scripture on saving and justifying faith. The one I'd like to speak with you about first is called community faith. Community faith. What is community faith? Well, you know, it's hard to speak of this one in, in, in the church today because very often uh, the visible church, as it is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not thought well of today. It's not given the proper honor and respect that it ought to be given. And what I'm about to talk to you about is giving it honor that is beyond what it should be given. Right? So here Pastor Todd now is is in this vein of speaking about the visible church. Don't put too much stock in it in a day when very few people put the right stock in it. So here we are then in this this conundrum, if you will. I first need to speak to you about the necessity of the visible church and then tell you don't make it so, so necessary that you don't close with Christ. Wow. It's a tall order for weak men, isn't it? And yet this is what we are up against today. Um, We want to talk about the importance of being added to the church and yet not overblow that importance of being added to the church, such that being added to the church, we think that 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 is all that's necessary. This is a species of far enough faith, isn't it? I've joined the church, and so that's really all I need to do. But we've seen, haven't we, in Scripture, especially as we trace out the lines of the book of Acts, and I'm going to reiterate here and you know, with some vehemence without pounding on the pulpit, that the book of Acts is, a, is an ecclesiastical manual for us. And we need to look at it like that. And so we have in that wonderful eighth chapter, when, when, when the gospel finally leaves the confines of Jerusalem and Judea and now into Samaria, Philip the evangelist is preaching in Samaria and there's men and women coming to faith in Christ and they are professing faith in Christ and being baptized. It's a wondrous revival in a place where no one thought the gospel would ever come. Samaria? Really? Yeah. Samaria. And it's going to be even weirder than that, right? Because it's also going to the uttermost parts of the world. Paul will say in, in, in Colossians uh, 1, next hour, Lord willing, uh, the gospel is preached to every creature under heaven. <clears throat> so what happens? Well, there's this man there. Uh, his name is Great Simon. Simon Magus, we, we call him, but really the, you know, the Greek mean, means Great Simon. And they called him Great Simon because they believed that he was an extraordinary man, that he had some divine powers, right? This man is the working of the, of the power of God, is what some of them said about Simon Great One. And he sees what Philip is is preaching and he says I want some of that and so Philip hears his profession of faith and it says that Simon Magus is baptized that means what 
Well, in the parlance of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, that means he's added to the church. Beloved, we don't ever want to downplay that. He was added to the church. And then Peter and a few others come from Jerusalem to see what's going on down there in Samaria. And of course they said down because Jerusalem was the pinnacle of the earth. And so whenever you left Jerusalem, you went down. Let's go down to Samaria. Although for us cartographers today, we, we, we think of it up because it's north on the map, right? But let's go down to Samaria and see what's going on there. And so they do and they, they find Wow, there's a real revival. And then, in order for the Lord, like he often does, to superintend that message, to make sure that it wasn't, you know, uh, haphazardly spread throughout the ancient world, the apostles then lay hands on folks that have professed faith in Christ and have been baptized, and they receive the Spirit of God, and they speak in tongues as a sign of them, of them uh, receiving the Spirit. And then that's when Simon reveals his true self, right? Not Simon Magus, but, but Simon Minus instead. And he says to Peter, um, here's my bag. I'd like to give you some money so that if I lay my hands on someone, they also might receive the Spirit of God. I want that power. And Peter looks Simon dead in the eye and he says, Thy money perish with thee. Thou hast no lot nor part in this matter. I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Right? Let me translate that for you. Simon, you're not a regenerate man. You're still in your sins. Simon might say, now wait a minute, Peter. I heard the preaching of Philip. I professed faith in Christ. I was examined. I gave all the answers. Peter, I've been baptized. How do you tell me that I'm in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness? I'm in the church. I'm part of the community of the faithful. I'm counted among God's people. Notice that that's not what he says at all. Simon is perhaps more candid than many are. Listen to Simon's response. I'm turning to Acts chapter 8. When Simon saw, verse 18, that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that, by the, that, that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps... The thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, 
that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Some of you know this about me, that my, my first licensure to the gospel ministry was with a, um, a conservative congregational group. And as a part of our training, us licentiates in that group, it was necessary for us to read through the New England congregational documents. Uh, they were the, um, the part and parcel of this denomination, and uh, it, it set forth what has been called the congregational way. And one of the things that I think the congregational church has very, very wrong, and yet it is pervasive among the, the, uh, in the West, in the American church scene, especially the Protestant scene, is that the New England Congregationalists, and we're going to think of men like Jonathan Edwards and others, although Edwards himself did not hold to this, it was the press and the effort on the part of the Congregational Ministry in New England to, uh, to characterize the visible church as having a, quote, regenerate church membership. This is in the documents. This is part of what you learn and part of what you read and so on. This to me is a great contradiction. It's a great contradiction because, uh, and, and we see this come to seed in some of the congregational difficulties that took place in New England with the halfway covenant and so on. What happens is when you baptize an infant, which many of the congregationalists still do to this day, they become a member of the church, don't they? Yet, very few are going to confess that they're members in the sense that they are part of that regenerate church membership, right? And so, suddenly then, we begin dividing out the people of God in, in our conception of membership at that point. Beloved, let me, let me just remind you that in the Presbyterian church, when we baptize an infant, that baptized infant is a member of the church. They come under her discipline. It is possible for us to excommunicate a baptized member only. And how do we do that? By taking them off the roll. They're not yet coming to the communion table, so they cannot be excommunicated in that way. But they can be excised from the role of the church. You see, that role that each church ought to be keeping uh, has its archetype in Scripture in two different ways. We have the role that is written in heaven, right? So there is an invisible church role, which speaks to the fact that there ought to be a visible church role. And then secondly, those parts of the Bible, when we're reading through the Bible, we, we have a tendency to skip over maybe, or maybe we run quickly over them because, you know, the names are hard to pronounce. Those genealogies... What are the genealogies, beloved, but a statement of church role in the days of the prophets of old? You see, keeping a church role is not something that is, you know, oh, it's a modern church invention. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, when they came back from the land of Babylon and resettled in Canaan, 
there was a roll that the Levites were written on and then the other families were written on. And if a man could not show himself on the roll as a Levite, he was put out of the priesthood. We have a church roll. We have people identified on that church roll as officers. Right? Why would we distinguish officers from members? Because of the function that is required of officers. We, we keep a role in our presbytery. Why do we keep a role in our presbytery? Because we keep track of who are voting members and who are not voting members. We keep track of their function and their role in the church. This is not an unbiblical thing, beloved. We're simply following that archetype in heaven, the invisible role, having a visible role here. And we don't thereby have two churches. We have the one church of Jesus Christ as it is considered from the perfect knowledge of God on the one hand and on the the imperfect knowledge of fallen men on the other. So we have the visible church. But as we've seen here with Simon Magus, so we see also in these keepings of roles and so on that it is simply not enough to be a member of the visible church. And the regenerate church membership is not a biblical doctrine. Having said that, we do want to talk about the judgment of charity that we owe one to another. We're not always looking at one another with a jaded eye, speaking to one another and saying, oh, I know you. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, aren't you? We don't do that, no. As long as professors maintain their competent profession of Christ, we judge charitably of them that they do truly belong to Jesus Christ. And so we give them our affection and so on. In fact, we even do that when someone might come under censure. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for a moment. This is that great passage where the apostle speaks very clearly about a, a man in the Thessalonian church or maybe more than one, that has um, stopped working. You know, Jesus is coming back next Tuesday, so I don't really need to work anymore. He's coming back. We don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. In fact, you don't even swab the deck. Right? And so here we are then. <clears throat> this man is not working. He's a, he's a busybody. Um, so verse 8, Neither did we, Paul says, Eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now, them that are such we command and exhort, By our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now there's a greater kind of, of excommunication that is seen in... 
if you will, Matthew chapter 18, where you're to count such a one as a heathen man and a publican. But not here, not yet. Why? Because he's under... He's still under the discipline of the church. The elders are dealing with him. He may have been censured from the table for his busybodiness, but he's still here and he's still on the rolls. He's still a member. And so we still consider him a brother. Now, if he continues in his obduracy and in his rebellion against the Lord, well, then eventually we will treat him like a heathen man and a publican. But not yet. Well, that's quite a judgment of charity, isn't it? Let's remember that, right? That, that yes, we want to offer a judgment of charity, but we're also remembering, beloved, it's a judgment of charity. It's not, it's not a sentence of charity. Those things are known only truly and absolutely to the Lord. And so we have this wonderful doctrine here that has got these two or three different perspectives that we must understand. When we talk about uh, a community faith, we cannot rest in our church membership. Yet we see how how necessary church membership is. That we will say in our confession of faith in chapter 25 that without membership in the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Well, that means there's an extraordinary possibility that we don't so much tie church membership to true regeneration that, <clears throat> that one cannot or one must have membership to have regeneration. We don't do that. But we do make it the ordinary means of God's proceeding, don't we? And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47, we see people are added to the church. They're added to the disciples in Acts chapter 4, we see they're added to the church, such as should be saved, and so on. Notice, such as should be saved, not those that were saved, were added to the church. And like we said last week in Romans chapter 13, speaking to the Roman church, Paul will say, your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. And so the first one for today, number five in our list, is community faith. And the assumption today, and this is the strange part to me as a minister and a student now, uh, a fairly intense student of the scriptures these past 30 years or so. The strange thing is that the people of God would err in this way such that they think evangelism takes place somewhere outside the church and people only come into the church after they have been born again. And beloved, that's not the biblical pattern. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of the definitive chapters on that. There are other places we could turn, but chapter 5 is very important. So, and this is one of those times where we do want again to to break across the, the, uh, the chapter break. Notice verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We then as workers together with him beseech you that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Who's Paul talking to there? He's not talking out on a street corner preaching. He hasn't set himself up in a restaurant and started preaching to the heathens that have gathered to eat. No. He's preaching to the church. Be ye reconciled to God. This teaches us, doesn't it, that membership in the visible church is not enough? That the judgment of charity that we offer to one another isn't enough? That, beloved, we are here where the gospel is being proclaimed that the elect might hear and be saved. That we might close with Christ. That we might rest upon him alone. Not we're here because we have done that. You may have. But let us also remember that we can be deceived even about our own estate. And as we've said in the other false faiths, That part of what we do here is we partake of those means that we might make it to the end of our course. And that it is presumption to begin teaching about a, quote, regenerate church membership. And how many ministers have presumed upon their congregation erroneously? Well, beloved, because I know my own heart, I won't presume upon yours. And we will continue to preach the gospel here and urge you all to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And we will say, yes, it is profitable for you to join the church and be added to Christ in that way. And we will also tell you not to stop at that false finish line. So, There are many places other than this we could turn in Scripture. And I don't say these things to rob you of your assurance. Because assurance, remember, beloved, assurance is not looking back to anything, but looking forward to Christ. I have to tell the story again. We were in a, um, a meeting with some folks, and they were looking at this sacrament of asking the Lord into your heart or whatever they were talking about. And I I asked them how many times they had done that. Because there's really no assurance that way. Although we say there is, there isn't. There really isn't. And we know that in the inner man. We know that in our heart. It is not your church membership, nor the strength of your faith, nor its efficacy. It's the efficacy of the object of your faith 
I am here, like Paul said, as a minister of the gospel, to marry you to him. And nothing short of that. So, the uh, question 63 in the larger catechism says it this way. What are the special privileges of the visible church? Notice, not the invisible church. The visible church. The visible church hath the privilege of being under God's special care and government, of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies, and of enjoying the communion of saints, the ordinary means of salvation, and offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whosoever shall be saved and excluding none that will come to him. You see, the Westminster Divines also knew what the venue of salvation was. It was here in the visible church. Beloved, let's not draw down from that. So we have Mr. Manton then commenting on Matthew 22. We'll take a few moments there. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. We'll not take the time to read the whole section, but there's a marriage supper that is being set for the son of a king. And he sends forth his servants out to gather all kinds of folks there. And so then, tell them which are bidden, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, all things are ready, come to the marriage. They made light of it, however, they wouldn't come. The king heard of it. He was wroth. They treated his servants spitefully and so on. So then he sent out other servants after he burned up their city. Of course, that's a testimony to what happened to Israel, Jerusalem. He sent out to his servants, uh, other servants, go and find others. They that bidden were not worthy go into the highways and byways as many as ye shall find and bid them to come into the marriage Luke will say compel them to come in so those servants went out in verse 10 and went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found both bad and good and the wedding was furnished with guests And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He had nothing to say. He had no testimony to give. And then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We cannot rest then in our membership in the visible church. We must come clothed in the wedding garment of Christ. We must be married to him. The second is a crowded faith. We'll have to hustle here. And here's what I mean by a crowded faith. I mean that there there are plenty 
that have our Lord Jesus Christ and things that are adjunct to him. They are next to him. They crowd him out, if you will. Jesus is added to the galaxy of their hobbies, possessions, and things, rather than being the only, the one necessary thing. Beloved, I believe that this is a a bane upon our church today. We, We have phrases that give it away, don't we? We say, Jesus came into my life. That's a lie. You didn't have a life. All we have without Christ is an abiding, stinking corpse. Well, this is set forth several times in Scripture under many different ways. The first that I'd like to show you is from the prophet Zephaniah. I've already turned there because of time, but I'm going to read from verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Kemarims with the priests. Now listen why the Lord would be so angry. And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. And them that worship and swear by the Lord and swear by Malcolm. And them that are turned back from the Lord. And those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Their faith is much too crowded. They swear by the Lord and by Malcolm. The Kemarims here with the priests. These Kemarims, they're guys that got up in the morning and went to Baal temple. And offered sacrifice there. And then in the afternoon they went to Jehovah's temple. And made sacrifice there. They were very tolerant. They were very pluralistic. They didn't mind that there were mosques next door to them. Because you know we're all going to the same place. Not so. That kind of crowded faith is not saving faith. The Lord says he's going to destroy the land for it oh beloved we cannot have such a crowded faith we cannot add Jesus to the galaxy of our other gods and call that saving faith no and while we will we while our faith will never be perfect in what is what it is supposed to be still there is a reality to saving faith that favors and exalts Christ over every other thing, right? We can't be left with all of these other things that we do. How can we tell if Christ is our chief end? Do you hear him? Does his voice move you? Or are there many voices that we listen to? In Isaiah chapter 43, 11, 44, 6, 44, 8, 45, 5, and 6, 
45, 21, 47, 8, Hosea 13, 4. The Lord says there, there is no other God beside me. None. And he will say things like, I know not any. He knows everything. If he says he knows not any, there aren't any. We cannot have God and mammon. We cannot have God and Malcolm. We cannot have God and riches. We cannot have God and our favorite hobby. We cannot have whatever it is that we would violate the Sabbath for because it's fun. We can't have it. We will either have Christ and he will occupy that unique place in our thoughts and affections, in our loyalty, in our fealty, in our worship, and in every other thing. Or we will not have him at all. We remember, don't we, the great work of good King Josiah. What did he do? Well, he had already heard that God was going to destroy the land. They're rebuilding the temple. They're, they're going to set up a Passover. And they've already heard by reading the book of the covenant that God's going to destroy the land. That doesn't stop Josiah from going out and tearing down. Tearing down the idols of the land and casting them into the brook Kidron. I like that metaphor of the brook Kidron. You know, it was that, that valley just outside of Jerusalem there where Josiah started in the city of Jerusalem where they had set up at every street corner, right? Uh, even Manasseh before him had, had done that. He had set up those idols. And Manasseh coming back from Babylon tore those idols down and cast them into the brook Kidron. We're not going to have another God to worship beside the Lord our God. He's going to be our exclusive love. Our exclusive loyalty and fealty belongs to him He is our king. He is our lawgiver. He is our judge. He will save us, is how Isaiah says it. No, sorry, Jeremiah. All of these things we must remember, beloved, and we must not add Jesus to the galaxy of things that we already have, that we already love, that we already worship in one way or another. Right? So, what did he do? He... He purged the land of all of those idols. He burned them down. He stamped them to powder. Cast them through the brook Kidron so that the people of God would watch their idols washing away. And he set up the worship of the Lord only. Jesus will say, if you're going to honor me, you must honor me even as you, as you honor the Father. He that honors not me, honors not the Father who sent me. Notice the uniqueness there that Jesus sets out. And so the Lord will brook no competition. A crowded faith, a faith which places its confidence in money and health and prowess or strength or weaponry or employment or any other thing alongside Jesus Christ is not saving faith. No, Christ must eclipse all of those things out of court. His bright shining then makes all else 
darkness. And we cannot then have a faith that is crowded up in that way. Our Lord Jesus Christ will take it even farther than this though, right? He will take it as far as, well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Even those closest of earthly relations are not to be compared to the love that we have to Christ. In what is perhaps a resting language, Jesus will say, he that cometh to me and hateth not his father and mother and son and daughter cannot be my disciple. He's not going to have anybody else on that altar with him. He's not going to have any other on that throne with him. He's not going to have any others on that platform with him. He is the unique son of God and him must we worship to the detriment of our our potential worshiping of anything else. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 13, 6 through 11 and Deuteronomy 17, we don't have time to turn there, but you'll remember the passage. If the wife of your bosom or the son or some other dear friend of yours says to you secretly, let us go and worship other gods. What's the sentence? Thine eye shall not pity. Thy hand will be first with the stones. Right? Nothing then. Nothing can stand in the way of our coming to Christ and nothing can be aside Christ. Nothing can be beside him in that. He must occupy a unique place. And so, a few years back, there's an organization called Focus on the Family. Wrong focus. Focus on Christ and let Christ give you back your family according to a proper order. Right? Focus on the Lord. Worship Him. Call upon His name. And so on. So we don't have time to look up all these scriptures, but let me just give them in, in, in brief to you. To trust in wealth is condemned in scripture. Psalm 49, 6-10, 1 Timothy six seventeen. Remember Matthew six thirty three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To trust in military might is condemned in Scripture. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in medicine and in doctors and in abiding health. This too is folly. 2 Chronicles 16, 2. Good King Asa is condemned because he was diseased in his feet in his latter years and he sought to the physicians and not to the Lord. He had something else that was beside God in that adjunct next to him. This is a sin, and it is not a description, not consistent with saving faith. 
We might look upon all of these in Scripture and see that it is folly to place confidence in things. This does not preclude a right and godly use of means, but we must never trust in them. It is God who causes them to be effectual. Remember Jacob and his poplar rods. Right? So, finally then we turn to Matthew chapter 13, Again, 18 through 23, the care of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. Mark 14, 18 through 19 says it this way. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things. And then in Luke 8, 14, it's put there as the cares and riches of this world. All of those things rise up among the thorny ground and choke out the word that becomes unfruitful. There's just too much stuff there. Not Christ alone. It's a... It's a It's a crowded faith. This is why the way that leads to destruction must be broad. Because it's got to have all those other idols and gods there. All the stuff that men have sought for and worshipped and given up their blood and treasure for all throughout their lives. They go with them to their final destination to be thrown into the brook Kidron. Beloved, don't you be thrown there. Don't you be duped by the enemy of your souls that you need all these other things in order to be happy. Remember Mary and Martha. One thing is needful. And beloved, if you have that one needful thing, the promise of Christ is what? It will not be taken from you. It will not be taken from you. So in closing then, let me read a, uh, a quotation to you from Aurelius Augustine the Bishop of Hippo. Actually, two quotations. Of his family we have been made. Into his family have we been adopted. His children we are, not by our merits, but by his grace. It is too grievous and too horrible that avarice should hold us to the earth when we say to him, Our Father which art in heaven, out of longing for whom all, him in whom all things are disesteemed, nor are things among which we have been born born for us, seeing that we have been born anew for him. Be these things for necessity's use, not for love's affection. They be as the traveler's hostelry, and not as the possessor's estate. Refresh thyself then, and pass on. Thou art journeying. Think to whom thou hast come, for great is he whom hath come to thee. And one more passage, very similar to this one, but perhaps a little clearer. For to enjoy a thing is to rest with satisfaction in it for its own sake. To use, on the other hand, is to employ whatever means are at one's disposal to obtain what one desires. If a proper object of desire for an unlawful use ought to rather be called an abuse instead. Suppose then we were wanderers in a strange country and could not live happily away from our fatherland, and that we felt wretched in our wandering, and wishing to put an end to our misery, determined to return home. We find, however, that we must make use of some mode of conveyance, either by land or by sea, in order to reach that fatherland where our enjoyment is to commence. 
but the beauty of the country through which we pass and the very pleasure of the motion charm our hearts and turning these things which we ought to use into objects of enjoyment, we become unwilling to hasten to the end of our journey and becoming engrossed in a factitious delight, our thoughts are diverted from the home whose delights would truly make us happy. Such a picture of our condition in this life of mortality. We have wandered far from God, and if we wish to return to our Father's house, this world must be used and not enjoyed. That so the invisible things of God may be clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that is, that by means of what is material and temporary, we may lay hold upon that which is spiritual and eternal. Beloved, far too many professing Christians are enjoying the world in the way that Augustine writes here, such that it has arrested their progress to the one necessary thing. And let's close then with the prophet Asaph from Psalm 73, verses 23 through 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside or alongside thee. Not in the place of that I desire alongside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, our hearts are warmed in hearing these things as we know the the depths of thy grace and we look at our own desires and we even see that we have sometimes presumptuously partaken of a community faith or a crowded faith. Forgive us, Father, and grant to us that one necessary thing that with the psalmist Asaph we might rightly truly from the depths of our heart say whom have I in heaven but thee deliver us then Lord from competitors to thy throne the throne of our affections and loyalty knowledge and light deliver us Lord also from the false finish line of church membership Yet that we would never diminish that church membership is an ordinary way stop to the finish line. Oh Lord, there are many ways we might err. Hold up our goings, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.